Well, thank you, Bev, for that uh, children's message. I, I could see the expressions on the faces of all the geologists in the room just lighting up with glee as the, as the rocks are being passed around. Who knows, future geologists might have been sitting there on the carpet. Uh, I invite you now to please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So when I was 15, I had the great privilege of taking a trip uh, with people from my high school uh, to Spain, southern France, and Italy. And the trip ended off uh, in Rome. And while I was there, while we were there, of course, we went to go uh, visit St. Peter's Basilica. I remember standing in line and going through security and then walking into this great Um, you know, arguably the greatest church in Christendom. When I was 15, though, I was like a really good and earnest Protestant. So when I walked into St. Peter's Basilica, all I could see was the corruption and waste of indulgence sales. I'm not joking. Actually, when I was 15, this is what I was thinking in my head as I walked in. I was like, think of all of the pennies that had been given from poor peasants in Europe to build this ostentatious monument uh, to the popes in Rome. Yeah, I could just see myself fuming as I stormed through, uh, uh, stormed through St. Peter's Basilica. I even noted that uh, the exchange rate for lira in the Vatican was higher than it was elsewhere, which, of course, I you know, pinned on some sort of corruptions within the church. I don't know where I got that from, to be honest. I think that was all from my Western Civ course. Um, but later, nine years later, I find myself back in Rome. And I find myself there studying Latin, And I got there before the course started, and the course was on the Vatican Hill, so it was very close to St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, I took a trip down to St. Peter's again, this time early in the morning. And this is before the big tourist wave of the summer comes into Rome. And so I walked into St. Peter's Basilica, and there was no line. And in the the worship space, it it felt virtually empty because it's such a big space. And I was blown away by the beauty and the majesty of it all. I don't know if you've been there, but you can see Michelangelo's Michelangelo's Moses and Pietà. You can see uh, these, uh, what look like paintings on the wall, but as you get close, you realize they're mosaics done with such skill that they look like oil paintings. And the the color and richness of the marble uh, in St. Peter's, I remember being so overwhelmed by that. And as you approach Uh, the central portion of the basilica, there's this massive canopy, black canopy, uh, incredibly beautiful, over the high altar at St. Peter's. And it lifts your eyes heavenward. And as you look up, again, in the the cupola are those, in gold, in solid gold, are uh, the texts that that Andy read this morning. Uh, You are Peter, all in the Latin Vulgate. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, it's appropriate that those words are there because even though St. Peter's was, was, again, begun by Julius II in the early 16th century, but the cupola wasn't actually dedicated until, uh, until 1590. So this was after the Reformation. This is when the battle lines had been drawn. And so to pick any scripture verse, to pick anything to write on that most prominent of spaces, they picked uh, the one verse that they based the primacy of the Pope on. Matthew 16. 
Because again, the Roman Catholic Church, the interpretation of the Roman Catholic Church is that this is when Jesus uh, literally said to Peter, you are the rock, and you're, I'm going to build my church on you, and you have the power to bind and loose sins. And again, the bishops of Rome, the popes, are the successors to Peter. Uh, they still claim that same authority, the vicars of Christ on earth. And again, that scripture is there to remind all visitors of, uh, of St. Peter's uh, about the place of the pope. Now, this, uh, this month we've been celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Uh, on October 31st, on Tuesday, uh, that really is the 500th anniversary. Uh, I imagine when Martin Luther made his famous trek down to the church doors in Wittenberg, the weather was much like we have outside here. And we've been uh, looking at various aspects of the Reformation, and today uh, we, we turn our sights to, to this nature of the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church and Protestant Church. And the, the one thing that separated these two, the one thing that was the dividing line, uh, the one thing that made the difference more than anything else was the primacy of the Pope, the authority of the Pope, the biggest thing that separates Protestants from Catholics. Now, the Reformation is something that has changed Western history and brought us very many good things. You look at modern education, so much of that is based in Reformation thinking, the fact that everyone has to read for themselves. Uh, so many of the great universities in the West were founded um, as a result of religious impulses. Uh, the Reformation get, drove people to think about theology in new ways. Um, it, according to Max Weber, helped give rise to modern capitalism. Uh, the Protestant, Protestant Reformation has, has truly transformed society, but one thing it's important to note as we're finishing our assessment of it is that there were a lot of bad things too. I mentioned a few weeks ago about the Peasants' War in the 1520s in Germany, where some 100,000 people died during the Peasants' War. Until the Peace of Augsburg in 1555, there was near constant warfare between Protestants and Catholics in Central Europe and Italy. And then uh, during the 17th century, uh, there was the great Thirty Years' War between Protestants and Catholics that over 30 years supposedly wiped out 30% of the German population. The Reformation, yeah, it did a lot of good things, but it also created uh, deep scars in Europe, deep scars in the psyche of Europe, and cost uh, a huge burden in terms of lives lost. All this on behalf, theoretically, of the Prince of Peace. And the, the, the painful thing is when you look at the history is that it didn't have to be that way. It's one of the things I wrestled with trying to read this through. It didn't have to turn out that way. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, did not intend to start a new sect, did not intend to start a new religion. He didn't intend to start this new movement. When he went down to post those 95 theses on that door in Wittenberg, all he was trying to do is correct some blatant abuses of the church. The church could have responded differently than it had. Than it did. But instead, Leo X, the Pope at the time, and some of his advisors in the Curia, they decided that no, they were not going to engage Luther in his arguments. They were going to say, you have to, re- you have to respect the authority of the Pope, period, end of story. And as a result, Luther was pushed away from the church, doubled down on his beliefs, and eventually began calling the Pope the Antichrist. And indeed, popes who followed Leo X uh, were no more conciliatory. In fact, some even less so. I mean, one of the great examples, the English Reformation could have been stopped if the Pope had just granted Henry VIII an annulment uh, and allowed him to marry Anne Boleyn. 
And instead the Pope didn't and lost all of England. That could have easily been prevented by some sort of conciliatory gesture. You had Charles V, the most powerful uh, man in the world at the time, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, this great uh, successor of all the Habsburg lands in Spain and Austria and the Netherlands uh, and even Italy. Charles V didn't need to do this, but saw himself as the great defender of Catholicism. And he's the one who fought these wars uh, in, order to, uh, in order to win back uh, places to the Catholic fold. That didn't have to be the case. You had as late as the 1530s, as late as the 1530s, you had Protestant leaders like Martin Bucer and Philip Melanchthon who were asking for a council, an ecumenical council to resolve the differences. In the 1530s, they were still saying, hey, we can bring this together. We can make this happen. You had people on both sides of the divide, Protestant and Catholic, who wanted to see some sort of bringing together of the two sides. You had Catholic reform movements that date back from before the Reformation that named the same abuses that Martin Luther named. You had people within the Catholic fold that had very similar theology. There was plenty of ground that could have moved forward. But instead, the individuals who were the leaders of these movements, particularly, I have to say, the individuals, certain of the Roman Catholic popes, refused to have any kind of conciliatory gesture. This council did eventually happen that the Protestants were asking for. It's it's known as the Council of Trent. It happened, uh, you know, 15 years after they had originally asked for it, and it lasted for nearly 20 years in different spurts. But the Council of Trent was the probably least conciliatory gesture that the church could have made to the Protestants. On every issue of theological disputation, the Council of Trent doubled down on old orthodoxy. They said, no, uh, transubstantiation is the way that uh, the sacrament of Holy Communion should be viewed. It is definitely a sacrifice. It is a a reliving sacrifice. Here are the seven sacraments. and And if anyone says anything different, let them be anathema. It doubled down on the veneration of the saints, on the cult of Mary, said indulgences are totally justified, said that the authority of the Pope should be unquestioned, said that there is no salvation outside the church in Rome, and condemned every Protestant, uh, excommunicated every Protestant, every Protestant leader, and condemned them all to damnation. That's what the Council of Trent did. Not only that, it went, it, even something like Erasmus, again, Erasmus, a Catholic scholar, until he died, had translated the Bible from its original Greek and Hebrew into a new Latin translation. And the Council of Trent said, no, the official translation of the church will be Jerome's Vulgate, period. That's the true translation, not any other translation. Now, it did do some reforming things. It called for more education of clergy. It tried to correct abuses of selling uh, of church offices. Uh, and the selling of indulgences. Uh, it definitely tried, it, it, it centralized authority in Rome. But fundamentally, the Council of Trent uh, was a drawing of the battle lines. Not coincidentally, the, the final pope who was around for the Council of Trent, this guy named Paul IV, uh, was known as as harsh a reactionary as there was within the, within the Curia. He was someone who led the Inquisition. They started a whole Inquisition uh, the Spanish Inquisition had begun in the late 15th century, but they started a new Inquisition in Italy just to stamp out any particular heresy. And it was so unpopular within Italy, where there weren't that many big reforming movements, it was so unpopular in Italy that there were mob revolts against it. And the person who led that Inquisition was, again, one of these popes that was in charge of the Council of Trent. And what I wrestle with is, is how long this bitterness between these two different sects lasted and how deeply it ran how intense the hatred was on both sides out of the Reformation. 
something so simple as architecture. Look at where we are in this wonderful meeting house. We might admire it for its simplicity, its beauty. Uh, but the reality is it's designed the way it is in part because it's as anti-Catholic as it comes. There's clear window, not stained glass window, on purpose. There's not a single statue around, none. There's no pictures of saints anywhere. It's plain, unado- plain and unadorned. Again, it's called a meeting house because we meet here. There's nothing, particu- there's nothing inherently sacred the, about the building in and of itself. So just as Protestants were doubling down on even on their side with the architecture, so are Roman Catholics. Again, you look at Baroque architecture. It's the most over-the-top in the other ways you could possibly get. And again, Roman Catholic churches were being built in that Baroque style right through the end of the 19th century. And then, I mean, and, and it, again, I, I mentioned this before, but I bring it up again because it's, it's so impactful for me personally, but I, I think about growing up in Boston and how... I know this is hundreds of years after the Reformation, how you still had these deep-seated divides. I mentioned before that, my fa- again, my father is someone who I have endless respect for, uh, someone who's one of the most upstanding, uh, morally sound people I've ever known. But he had this one incredibly deep-seated prejudice against Roman Catholics. He was raised in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, and he was very involved in his Unitarian church in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. And he's much like his middle son, uh, likes getting involved in theological arguments. Um, and he would try to engage his classmates. And the one group that would never engage him in an argument were the Catholics. This drove him nuts. Back before Vatican II, he wasn't allowed to go into a Catholic church. They weren't allowed to come into his church. There was no, like, whenever they did youth activities in the, in, in the town, the Protestants got together and the Catholics got together. These deep-seated things stuck with my father for his entire life. Again, i never forget when, when my sister was dating a guy very seriously at the end of college. Uh, this is in 2003. My father objected to him, and the grounds that he objected, that he objected to him for, was that he was Catholic. In 2003, if he had been Jewish, my father would have, nope, no problem. Atheist, no problem. <laughs> Catholic, big issue. I mean, but it, just, it just goes to show how long these... These, how, how deep did this bitterness in the Reformation last? And it's something that we have to wrestle with today, especially as we try and reflect on the nature of the Reformation. What's your experience of the Catholic Church? Did you grow up in the church, Catholic Church? Did you leave it? Why? Did you grow up, uh, much like my father, in a place where there was a sharp divide between Protestants or Catholics? Or did you grow up in a place where there weren't any Catholics or that it didn't matter? My views on Catholicism changed uh, dramatically before divinity school. I have a confession to make. I, I almost converted to being a Catholic. I'm serious. <laughs> before divinity school, I was, uh, you know, I decided to go to divinity school and I was reading all these various theological things, everything I could get my hand on, um, and had discussions with the Jesuits, uh, Society of Jesus, Jesuits in Boston. It's the largest collection of Jesuits anywhere in the country. Uh, and in fact, I still have a, a book of prayers that they gave me, several books that they gave me during that whole discernment, those discernment discussions with them. I remember reading Thomas Merton's Seven-Story Mountain when I was in Rome uh, studying Latin. Again, I was studying Latin with, the Pope, with one of the Pope's Latin secretaries who worked translating all the stuff going in and out of the Vatican. There were all these priests that were there with us. I, was, I, I, I developed a great appreciation for the Catholic tradition and again, in, in, in a very postmodern sense. So there's this, it's, you know, how do you, 
how, how do you conceive of what the church is? And this is one of the things I said, like, the, the Catholic Church and the tradition embodies the way human beings have worshipped God in relation to Christianity over 2,000 years, and it's changed dramatically over those 2,000 years, but is there some sort of core strand in the tradition? Is the Holy Spirit working through the church or not? I remember wrestling with the fact of, like, um, you know, what's the rationale today to not be in communion with the Bishop of Rome? Why am I not? When I started divinity school, I actually entered the RCIA process to become a Catholic, and then halfway through, um, I pulled out. And in the end, some of the, in the end, I was like, you know what, even though I have this very liberal, rosy view of the Catholic Church, in the end, uh, there still is, there's still certain doctrinal and theological things that I just simply can't wrap my head around and will never be able to wrap my head around. Um, and so made the decision not to pursue that. In hindsight, I'm very glad that I made that choice. But it gave me a deep appreciation for the church. Now, the text that we have from Matthew 16. There's, of course, the Roman Catholic interpretation that this is Jesus, you know, starting the church and naming Peter as the first pope. But there were also Protestant interpretations of Matthew 16. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The typical Protestant interpretation of that is what is the rock? The rock actually is not Peter himself but why Jesus called him the rock. And that was the confession that he makes in the line before. Again, here he is, and Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And Peter's the one who steps forward and says, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are, the, you are God's anointed. And then Jesus says, you are the rock on which I build my church. As, as I say, Protestants always said, the rock is that confession of Jesus as the Messiah. That's the rock, not Peter himself, who is a fallible human being, but the rock upon which the church is built is that confession of Jesus as the Christ. And I wonder if now, 500 years later, as we look back on the Reformation, both its positive things and its negative things, whether or not we can't lift up uh, the fact that we we still have unity based on that confession, that basic confession. Jesus is God's anointed. All Christians can look around and say, we agree on that. We might disagree on a lot of stuff, but we agree on that. And can we use that, that rock, that confession, to bring about some sort of greater unity, greater understanding, and greater appreciation for one another's uh, gifts and talents? And I have to confess that for me personally, this is harder in Houston, Texas, than it, than it has been any other place that I've, that I've lived. Because in Houston, Texas, the Roman Catholic Archdiocese here is very, very conservative, <laughs> The Cardinal Archbishop is uh, definitely falling into that very conservative camp. Um, someone who I think wants to be Pope someday. He's currently head of the American uh, sort of conference of bishops. Um, and especially he's very, very negative on LGBT rights. Uh, so, it, I don't know, I'm trying to wrap my head around, trying to reach out to the church. And then the, the church in this area is less likely to be involved in ecumenical activities than the Catholic Church in other areas that I've lived in. Similarly, you look at evangelical Protestants. Uh, Houston, Texas has the largest and most vocal group of evangelical Protestants of any place I've lived. And I have to confess, it's hard for me sometimes to want to make an active effort to reach out to them, to work with them, to say, can we look at the rock that we share, that confession in Jesus, uh, and actually have some sort of common ground? 
But I think that if we're true to the United Church of Christ, to what the United Church of Christ stands for, what our denomination was built around, our denomination was built around ecumenism, around that great line of Jesus' that they may all be one. And it's a challenge for each of us, especially in Houston, to try and live that out. Can we, as good uh, liberal Protestants, look at, say, the Roman Catholic Church and realize that we might need a greater appreciation of church history and tradition? Maybe we need a greater appreciation of the sacraments, of a sense of the holy in liturgy. Maybe we can learn from that and benefit from that and grow from that as Christians. Is there a way that we can look at our evangelical brothers and sisters and learn from their, uh, their commitment to their faith? Uh, their fervor of their faith? Can we have that same fervor and commitment in our own faith and our own witness? And can we share some of our gifts with them? Our witness to social justice. Our unfailing uh, desire to uh, take the life of the mind seriously. To realize that no new knowledge should be scary knowledge. No new knowledge should be a threat to our faith. But we can incorporate all that into, and try and find out where God is still speaking. We all bring different gifts to the table. As we look back on the 500-year history of the Reformation, now that 500 years has passed, there's a challenge whether or not we can lay aside some of these old bitternesses, these old you know, bitter feelings, these old rivalries, and move forward as one body, one body in the confession of Jesus, to try and make our community and indeed our whole world a more compassionate and just place for all.